It's not about how we feel. It's not about our circumstance or our situation. It's about Him. It's about who He is, about how great He is, and how privileged we are to know Him. Praise God. Praise Lord, Sister Casey, I appreciate that. You are relieved. I do appreciate the opportunity to speak to you this morning. I consider it a tremendous privilege to stand behind this sacred desk, and I understand the importance of it. I do respect your time. So I'm going to try to get to the point. I'm not going to be very long. Of course, I say that all the time. And you probably groan when I say that because you know it's coming. But I do feel uh, uh, led to speak to you this morning about a specific subject, and that subject is about starting over or beginning again. To use your past as a platform instead of allowing it to become your prison. Our text is going to be taken from one of the lowest points in the life of what I consider one of the greatest figures in the early church and in the whole of Christianity. I I really like his character. I don't know what that says about me. But this narrative uh, occurs immediately after the Last Supper and relays the moment that Jesus is taken for his eventual, his later crucifixion. At this moment in time, it's, it's a, it is a time of change, of tremendous change, and of tremendous testing for the people that were following Christ, for those people that were closely following him. And the particular person we're going to be looking into a little bit later is, is the Apostle Peter. Luke chapter 22, verses 54 through 62. And this may seem like an odd text to preach a sermon to enter into the new year, but that's what God gave me. Verse 54 says, Then took they him and led him and brought him into the high priest's house. And Peter, well, Peter followed afar off. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and were set down together, Peter sat down among them, among those that were going to watch the trial and execution of Christ. But at a certain But a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said, This man was also with him. And he denied him, saying, Woman, I I know him not. And after a while, after a little while, another saw him and said, Thou art also of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And about the space of one hour, another confidently affirmed, saying, Of a truth, This fellow was also with him, for he is a Galilean. Verse 60 says, And Peter said, Man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately while he yet spake, the cock crew. Verse 61 says, And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out, and Peter wept bitterly. You may be seated this morning. I believe, this, I believe the Lord gave me this message. For those of you that are here, God knew who was going to be here. He knows your past. He knows your life. He knows you better than you know yourself. And I pray that the strangeness of the current season doesn't prevent you from, 
from here again. What do I mean by the strangeness of the season? I, I love Thanksgiving and Christmas. It's my favorite time of year. I'm sure it's for many of you. It's like it's the one time of year. This is not the main reason, but it's the one time of year that it actually gets cool in Louisiana. So that's pleasant. But I do have a few words about the holiday season and the strangeness of the current aspect of it. And, and what I mean by that it's strange is that we're in a transitional period. That's what we're in right now. When we think of the holiday season, we naturally think of, of Thanksgiving and, and of Christmas. They are the primary holidays of this season. It's, uh, I call it Turkey Day 1 and Turkey Day 2. And I wonder, this is kind of an aside, I wonder why do we only eat turkeys twice a year? We love them. They are delicious, and there's a lot of them. But as much as we like them, we only eat them twice a year. Maybe that's best. It is the time of year that we, uh, the holiday season, it's the time of year that we interact with our family members that, that we perhaps don't get to see very often. And I don't know if that's by choice or by circumstance. I can understand both reasons. We profess our love and appreciation of the people around us as we should. We contemplate the myriad blessings within our lives and and become overtly and privately thankful. That's very unusual for this culture. We are very uh, me-centric in this culture, and I do welcome any time that we can pause for a moment and, and appreciate the blessings of our lives, the fact that we live in one of the greatest or the greatest country on this planet. We have the opportunity to be here and worship God without fear of reprisal from our government, much reprisal, I should say. We live in the greatest country and the, an, an amazing time. I, I often wonder why people say that it was so much better back in the old days. Hygiene wasn't all that great in the old days. There's better things here and now, air conditioning, better food. So I do appreciate and I'm thankful for the time in which I live. Our culture does pause and it examines itself and purposefully chooses to be appreciative of its good fortune and advantage. How many of you here this morning over the last month have paused to reflect on just how blessed you really are? I would think that every hand could be raised in this auditorium this morning. Even even those whose lives have been marked by difficulty, they try in this time of year and find something positive to be grateful for, attempting to bring a more balanced context and perspective to their existence. You can't live in negativity all the time, and this is a great time to find the things to be thankful for. We also collectively celebrate the birth of Jesus and reflect upon the impact of his existence on this world. And more specifically, how the Lord has transformed our lives. We know that the Christmas season has been co-opted by the commercial interests of this world. We understand that. But it doesn't diminish our zeal to worship for real reasons. It doesn't really matter what this world does and and how they want to use it for their interest. I know who Jesus is. I know the significance of his birth. I understand how it's relevant to me. And I'm thankful for it, and I'm going to worship him. 
And I understand that his birth was not on December 25th. I don't care. I don't care. He was born, and I'm appreciative of that fact. That's what matters. Colossians 2 and 7 says that we should be rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. I understand that the world pauses for a few moments once a year to worship and, and acknowledge the birth of Christ. But those of you who have been touched by His Spirit, have been filled with the Holy Ghost, we need to worship God and appreciate His birth every single day of the year. The birth of our Savior should be celebrated. And, and although we try to live consciously for Him every day, we can also pause and reflect on December 25th to recognize the importance of His birth. There has been has been an incremental erosion of the truth of God's existence. I understand that. And there is a conscious effort by many to deny the reality of God. But although this world and, and our culture has participated in the rejection of Christ, there remains those who have retained the enthusiastic joy of their conversion and are still excited about God. And I think I see some of those people here today. You remember the moment you encountered Christ. That connection changed the course of your life. You understood that you were no longer alone. That your future was not defined by the limited timeline of a human life. Your reality expanded with the realization that God is real. And that I can feel Him and that He's interested in me. He's not some cool, dispassionate intellect that simply evaluates mankind. He cares about you. When you met Jesus, suddenly your mind was open to the reality of potential residency beyond the constraints of this world. That's what it means to know Christ. That's, the, that's what it means to know Jesus. But the fact is, Thanksgiving and Christmas are, are over. They're over. doesn't invalidate all those great things I just said, but you're going to have to wait another 12 months to experience that all again. Every year at this time, millions of people begin to form a list of resolutions. That's kind of what I want to get at. All that wasn't about my message. This is about... I don't know if you participate in this futile effort, but this is resolution time. In America, the expression of intention is usually birthed from some perceived personal inadequacy or failure. We understand that we lack in some aspect of our lives and that that needs to be addressed. For some reason, we do it on January 1st. That's what I mean by this kind of an odd season. It's a transitional time that we live in right now. We come from this high of thankfulness and appreciation of Christ, but we're staring into a new year, and we've got to get through it. And we, we, we tend to evaluate our lives and what we've done in the previous year. I understand this. We've got to address some things. We, we resolve to lose weight. 
Yes, I'll laugh too. We resolve to lose weight and, and become more healthy. We resolve to do this. Why? Why? Because over the last year, we have not been physically disciplined and are incredibly unhealthy. And we've eaten a lot of pie and cookies that our wives have cooked along with our kids. Right. We determine to be better spouses or better parents or better employees. We do this because at this moment of of this time of year, we allow ourselves to face the reality of our deficiencies, and we choose to make an improvement. We choose to try to make an improvement. We, we plan to read more because we, we just haven't made the time to read enough in the previous year. We haven't made that time. This, this acknowledgement of inadequacy naturally extends into our spiritual lives. Unfortunately, when we, when we face this inadequacy, this spiritual inadequacy, we must factor in the fact that our deficiency in this one area is in the one area that matters most. I, I, I understand that we, we want to be healthier, physically healthier, but if it really comes down to it, that has no eternal value. And I do want to be better at my job and, and more literate. But that has no eternal value. But what we do for Christ, what we do for God, how we carry this precious treasure as a vessel matters for all eternity. There is nothing that we extend into our lives that we work at that matters more. We begin each year with a firm resolve to do things differently than the year before. Each January 1st, we, in this culture, we begin again. Often the vows are simply a renewal of the ones that we made the previous year. I resolved to be physically healthy in 2018. It did not work out that well. So a lot of times the, the, the resolutions that we make, we, we could probably just keep them on a, on, a, on a piece of paper and just carry them forward every year. The problem is we can't do that with Christ. We affirm to serve God more diligently, to be more prayerful, to be more devoted, to be more faithful. Our spiritual resolutions can over time become an indictment of our spiritual deficiencies. How often have we resolved to serve God more, to be more committed to Him, to not do the things that we know that we shouldn't? Is it so often that we now no longer even make the resolution to change? This, this mentality, this... It can, if we're not careful, cause us to become satisfied with a diminished relationship with the Lord. We'll be satisfied just to come to church and to sit on the comfortable seats and to go through the motions and to worship when we're told to, but it doesn't extend beyond that into our lives because we've, we've intended so often and we've disappointed God so frequently. I'll just stay on the sidelines. 
and have my Pentecostal camouflage and go through another year and hope nobody expects me to function in the calling that God has placed on my life. This mentality that we have that we can't start over, that we can't make that resolution to change it, it does not factor in something very important. It does not factor in our God's profound love. It does not take into account His kindness or His mercy or His grace. We heat condemnation on ourselves when God is standing by us, urging us to continue. You may be, you may be thinking that, that your God, your merciful, loving God, must be tired of me. Or my failure has been so great that he could not possibly forgive me. Or that I have been so deficient in the same way so often that he could no longer forgive me for what I've done. We need to talk about the big picture. This pattern of human failure in respect to God and, and that that failure requires some divinely created path for renewal and restoration or a new beginning is, a, is repeated throughout the Bible. What you are experiencing is not uncommon in the Word of God. It is a reflection of what happens be between man and God. Adam and Eve were in relationship with their Creator. They knew who God was. They did not have to be convinced of His reality. They walked with Him and knew Him and interacted with Him. Their interaction, the interaction they enjoyed was unique and it was incredibly strong. The Scripture says that God would walk with them at a time of day that they, Adam and Eve, would find comfortable. This intimate fellowship, however, was interrupted by the willful disobedience of these same two people. They had relationship with God. They interacted with Him. They felt and knew His presence. And still they rejected Him. They were oblivious to the implications. It did not matter to them at, the, at that moment. Even though their bond was strong, it did not prevent their failure in relationship to their creator and their benefactor. They chose to alienate God from their lives by defying his will and appointed perfect plan. It was a choice. They weren't on the periphery, ladies and gentlemen. They were church people. They were church people. If I can use the analogy, they sat in the pews. They felt the presence. They worshiped genuinely. They had a genuine relationship with God. However, within this narrative, we see the character of our Lord exposed. In their failure, God's character was exposed. He is not satisfied with, the, with expulsion or separation. 
at the moment, at the very moment of Adam and Eve's greatest failure, God creates a path forward for humanity. He opens the door to begin again. Genesis 3 and 15 says, And I will put enmity between thee and thy woman, and between thy seed and her seed shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The Lord's future manifestation of Jesus for the purposes of redeeming mankind was alluded to at the inception of enormous human failure. At the very moment that those that, that he loved and that he walked with and he desired relationship with and had relationship, the moment that they defied him and denied him and rejected them, God chose to open a door to give them a way to come back to him. We failed. We failed, but were allowed to begin again. Humanity again shows its propensity to destroy, to destroy that which is eternally valuable when the whole of humanity, the whole of the human race, rejects God's influence to indulge in its carnal appetites a little bit later. Later in Genesis, we read in chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, and it says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man from whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for he repenteth me that I have made them. But verse 8 Verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Why did Noah find grace in the eyes of God? Because God was looking for someone to give grace to. In the face of, the, in the face of, of rejection, in the face of man again falling and failing, what did God do? He didn't just wipe his hands free. Of humanity, he found a way forward for you and I. Man traded divine connection for the squalor of sin. And yet in that moment of deficiency, God was not satisfied with destruction and separation. The Lord looked into the future of humanity, and God saw potential for vibrant relationship in the aftermath of failure. You don't know what God sees in your life. You cannot see beyond your failure, your inadequacy, your deficiency. It consumes you. But God doesn't live on your time span. He sees your potential. It's still available. He still wants to transform your life. And he still wants to use you for the purpose that you were designed for. So God made a path through defeat that allowed humanity to begin again. The children of Israel were vessels of the reality of God. We're tracing our way through the Bible, church. We're going to get back to Peter in a moment. They possessed the truth of his existence. Why? Because it was woven into the very fabric of their identity. They were a transformed people. Abraham, Abraham was obedient to God. 
leaving his home for the promise contained in his covenant bond, bond with Jehovah. His progeny witnessed the power of their creator arrayed on their behalf as they exited the oppression of, of Egypt. They saw their oppressors destroyed by their obstacles. They drank water from stones and were sustained by manna from heaven. These people were lifted from oppression and put on a path of reconciliation. They, they were shown by God His reality. The power of God was arrayed on their behalf. They were in an incredibly privileged position. The reason that God did all these magnificent things in the eyes and in front of Israel is because He wanted to remind them of who He was. Yet in the midst of divine deliverance and in the midst of providence from heaven, they they turned their back on God and lifted their eyes to idols. Their rejection of the Lord was bold in its indifference to the unique connection that was forged and created by God for them. And, and, yet, and yet the Lord was not looking for the opportunity to destroy, but rather He was looking for pathways to restore. God knew when He liberated Israel from Egypt, that they were going to deny him. They knew that, he knew that they were going to reject him. And yet he loved them anyway. And he made a pathway forward anyway. He did it anyway because his love exceeds our potential for failure. The Lord revealed this mentality toward a creation that is prone to failure when he spoke to Solomon. In 2 Chronicles 7 and 14, verse 14 says this, If my people, and this is a very common scripture, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. It is an acknowledgment of the failure of the people, but it shows them a path forward. Yes, you have failed me, yet you can begin again. For every failure, there was an admonition to begin again. God opened a door toward restoration. He fashioned a way forward for a people who did not deserve the kindness. How often do we limit God's power? How often do we limit His grace? How often do we limit His mercy? Because we can't conceive of it. We think that God can either. For every failure, there was an admonition to begin again. That's goes, that is true today as it was thousands of years ago. God's character has not changed. Your God is still willing to forgive you. He still wants to transform your life. This extreme compassion is difficult for us to understand. Because so often our hearts and our minds are calloused toward the extension of mercy and reconciliation towards someone who has wounded us. It is difficult for us to forgive others. If you wound me, it is difficult for me to forgive you. That's what we say. That's what we live. 
We measure God's ability to be merciful, merciful by the deficient yardstick for our capacity to be merciful. We project onto Jesus our propensity to reject and condemn. But the fact is, ladies and gentlemen, God is greater than we are. His mercy is renewed each day and endures beyond the immediate sting and failure of betrayal. Which brings us back to our text. Before we examine and criticize Peter, we need to understand the man who betrayed his Lord and failed to stand with him in the hour of his adversity. Peter was handpicked by God. He didn't come to him late in the game, ladies and gentlemen. He was chosen by Christ. Peter was in relationship with Jesus. In, the, in our text, he was, he was devoted to Christ. He was not on the periphery of church. He lived for God. He abandoned the common culturally determined course of his life to follow Jesus. He had a plan for his life, and then Jesus came along and transformed everything. He walked with the Lord and and learned from the Lord, and he loved the Lord. His connection to the Lord was one initiated, as I said, by Jesus. Peter's mind was no longer trapped by the established norms of his experiences. He was exposed to the divine, and it had changed them. So I know who I'm talking to this morning. I am talking to people that know Christ. I'm talking about people that, are, that, are, that have experienced the power, grace, mercy, and love of God. You stand and have walked hand in hand with the Lord. You have a connection to Peter. You can sympathize with him. He was not a man on the periphery of the Lord's influence and power. He walked with God just like we do. The failure of Peter, however, was foretold by Jesus at the height of Peter's zealous devotion to Christ. In Luke chapter 22, we read in verse 31, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. This is, this is Christ, ladies and gentlemen, talking to a man late in the game. This was a man experienced in the supernatural. Verse 32 says, Jesus said, But I prayed for thee, I prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and into death. Peter's faith was rock solid prior to what it would occur just moments later. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt thrice deny that thou even knowest me. I'd like to read verse 32 in a different translation. New Living Translation says it like this. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, 
that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented, so when after all this you have repented, Jesus knew what was coming. Peter did not. God was telling him, after you have offended me to the point that you can't even conceive, after you have repented, and after I have forgiven you, and after you have begun again, strengthen your brothers. I have purpose for you beyond your failure. Jesus was telling this brash man who loved him so totally that his deepest, most devastating offense and failure and inadequacy and deficiency was going to occur after his calling to follow and be a disciple of Christ. It was going to occur after he walked upon the water in a supernatural demonstration of faith. Peter would have laughed at the very idea of rejecting Jesus as he walked across storm-tossed waters. It would occur after his, his betrayal would occur after he witnessed the feeding of the multitude. It would occur after he, re, he revealed his understanding of Jesus' divine nature and, 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 and origin. It would occur after in his, in his zealous devotion of Christ, he would pull a sword and cut off a man's ear. His failure would occur after he spoke in tongues at the front of the, at the, uh, in front of the, uh, the church. It would, it would occur after he had a, a great ministry in music. It would occur after he stood behind a pulpit. It would occur after he had witnessed to his family. Your strength your purpose, your path forward is not dependent or contingent upon your perfection in the faith. It depends on the grace and the mercy of God Almighty. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. We got to stop standing on the periphery. We got to stop allowing our past mistakes to become a prison. Allow them to become a platform that demonstrates the mercy, grace, and power of God in your life. These experiences that I just spoke of, 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 of Peter's magnificent experiences with Christ, these experiences that preceded his failure, they were foundational to his faith. I, I, I have no doubt that Peter, in his ministry, would remember the day he walked on water and reached out to Jesus. I, I have no doubt that he told others with, in his ministry, as he was evangelizing about the time that Jesus broke bread and fish and, and fed thousands. I have no doubt that he would tell people about how he witnessed Christ open blind eyes and, and lift people from being crippled. So these things were foundational to his faith. They helped define his relationship with God. But so did the experiences associated with his failure. How many of us 
have scaled the mountains of spiritual experience and have found ourselves buried in the valley moments later. Some of you may struggle with the reality of your present failure as it has occurred after you have started your walk with God and have served Him for so long. Peter walked in the dark terrain of exposed, obvious personal deficiency and failure so that you and I, so that you and I can understand and apply this truth. In God, there is a pathway forward for you, and you can begin again. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Glory to God, glory to God. I know you probably weren't expecting to hear a message like this in between Christmas and the new year, but I got, I got news for you. God needs to get us moving quickly. We learn of God's willingness to forgive through Peter's failure. We hear the invitation to begin again through the devastating failure of this powerful man of God. That backslidden loved one or friend that is in your life, they need to know that they can begin again. Got to stop standing on the outside looking in, church. Got to stop standing on the periphery. You say, well, the people, people that I've, I've failed and they know about it. Good! They need to know about Christ's forgiveness as well. They need to understand that out of sin and the, and the burden of your failures, you can walk forward with Christ. That's the kind of God we serve. If you do not allow God to let you begin again, you're saying to those around you that His grace and His mercy isn't capable of lifting them out of where they are. Those of you who are battling with personal condemnation associated with your mistakes, you need to know that you can begin again. If you have failed, you can begin again. If you have failed more than once, you can begin again. If you have failed time and time and time again, if you've got breath in your body, I've got a God that's willing to forgive. That person has remained on the periphery of God's love and mercy because they cannot accept that the Lord is interested in someone whose life is marked by the result of one wrong choice after another and needs to know that they can begin again. That individual must understand that our God's mercy and our God's grace is not predicated upon their perfection. They have a path forward in Christ because He loves them. Their future, your future, in relationship with Jesus is not held hostage by the failures of your past. I don't care what condition you came in this, this building I don't care what your condition was. I don't care how many times you failed God. 
I don't care how many times you've done the same thing that was wrong over and over and over again. You walked into this place because this place represents hope. I felt the presence of God from the moment we began this service. That presence that I feel right now is urging you in your mind to make that step forward, to leave that behind you, to leave your past behind you, and to start again in what God has planned for you. We need to recognize the implications of this dark story of that powerful man of God. Number one, Peter's failure occurred more than once. This is not a license to sin. This is the understanding of human fallibility and weakness and the overwhelming grace and mercy of our God. So Peter's failure occurred more than once. It was a repetitive mistake. They were failures that exposed him as a fraud to those who would recognize him as a follower of Christ. What is so interesting to me, at these people who who stood around him and, and saw him weep because he denied Christ, I guarantee you they were the same people that he preached to after the day of Pentecost. Your testimony can change lives. You think you're the only one that has failed God more than once? His failure, Peter's failure could have, it could have been a reason for him to walk away from relationship with God. It would have been very simple for him to fade away with the rest of the disciples in that moment. Let's read our text again. Verse 54 says, when they took him and led him and brought him into the high priest's house, Peter followed afar off. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall, and when they sat down together, together, Peter, well, he sat down right there among them. We learn from, from Peter's example that he first distanced himself from God and from fellow believers. And then he surrounded himself with the world. This cannot be our template of behavior in the dark moments of our life. You may, be, you may feel unworthy to be in the presence of God. And, and you may feel unworthy to sit around people of like belief. But this is your place of refuge, church. This is where you come when you fail. This is the presence that you want around you when you've made a mistake or you feel the deficiencies of your life weighing on you. This is the presence that allows you a path forward. But a certain maid beheld him, and we've read this, and verse 7 says, Woman, I, I don't know him. And verse 58, he goes on and says, Look, I don't know the man. In the space of an hour, He had an hour to think about what he's done. Another confidently affirmed saying of a truth, this fellow was also with him, for he's a Galilean. Peter said, man, I I, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know him. And he spake, and as he yet spake, the cock crew. And and verse 61, and the Lord turned. So Jesus was facing his accusers. He was facing his future crucifixion, and, and he heard this going on behind him. And he turned. To look at Peter. I think that's a profound thing. We often don't really think about it. 
that one little sentence in, in, in that scripture. And we think that, that Peter wept and turned away and ran from Christ because Christ looked for him. See, we read verses 56 through 60, and we can, we can relate to Peter's defeat. His capacity for failure is, is only rivaled by our own deficient capabilities or capacities. We can certainly admit that we are as fallible as, as Peter was. We can relate to him. We understand decisions made in fear. and We understand being motivated by self-preservation and self-interest. But something that we shouldn't do, we cannot project this flawed, carnal calculation onto Jesus. God is not motivated by the same things that we are. We presume that Jesus turned and looked at Peter to condemn. We imagine Jesus' face scowling at this man who walked with him and then betrayed him so blatantly in his time of need. We make this presumption because that's what we would have done. Praise God. That's what we would have done in that moment. When, if we were betrayed, we would turn and, and we would hope the person who betrayed us would wither in our gaze. But we have to remember something. Jesus isn't like us. Our God is motivated by love. The circumstance that he stood in was a calculated, deliberate choice by an entity that had been faced with the fallibility of man from the beginning of time. Peter's failure was nothing new to God. God stood robed in flesh moments away from a horrible, humiliating death because of man's propensity for failure. He, he stood there as the pathway forward for Peter. He was the doorway to restored relationship to the very man who had just betrayed him. So why would we think that this gracious, loving being would look with scorn in his eyes at an individual who desperately needed him at that very moment? I believe wholeheartedly that, that Jesus turned and looked at Peter not to condemn him. I believe at the moment of Peter's greatest failure that the Lord did not want this man to see his back, but rather his face, so that he would understand that he could begin again. That's why Jesus looked at him. He looked at Peter in the face so that Peter could see love and redemption and mercy at the very moment that he spit on God. Peter may have been torn emotionally from his mistake, but in the faith, but in the face, but in the face and in the actions of our Lord, he saw a pathway to begin again. I firmly believe that Peter saw in Jesus' face forgiveness. I believe he saw compassion. I believe he saw love instead of hatred and disappointment and scorn. I believe that's why Peter wept so bitterly. He was expecting something else, Dave. 
this is the lesson that we need to learn, church. In our failure and error, when you finally look up to the Lord, you're not, you're not looking at a, be, a, a being that's eager to reject. Jesus, somebody needs to listen to me this morning, Jesus has not turned his back on you. Jesus has seen your deficiency. He has seen your inadequacy. He has seen your failure. But he has not turned his back on you. You need to gaze. You need to look up from your fa- failure and, and gaze into the face of your Savior. And you need to begin again. As beautiful as Jesus' gesture was, we see that it was an assured outcome for Peter. The Lord says, so when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. The Lord knew of the impending weakness of the rock of the early church. The Lord not only foretold of this man's error, but of his eventual forgiveness and restoration. How do we know that Peter began again? How do we know that he found his pathway forward? Because this man who wept bitter tears at the enormity of his offense was the same man who stood in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. He was the same man who was one of the first to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. He also was the man who declared the plan of salvation to those who were witness to the first outpouring of God's Spirit. He is the same man chosen by God to open the door of truth to the Gentile nation. It was through Peter, this man who failed God so totally that we read in the book of Acts of miraculous healings and divine intervention. This man who denied Christ to preserve himself was eventually crucified upside down because he loved Jesus so much and found a pathway forward. Look, I'm telling you, Peter's pathway didn't get him out of the pain of serving God. It just delayed it a little while. Peter served God. And in the end, he received the same thing he would have received if he had just admitted he served Christ. You can begin again this morning. These incredible contributions to the Christian faith were accomplished by a man who began again. Peter's powerful work in ministry occurred after, after he failed Christ. Why do we stand weighted by our offense? Is it because we think that this stain on our lives invalidates the grace of God? Do you think that your failure is, is, is deeper and greater than the mercy of the creator of this universe? Do you think that you have no future in Christ? No hope of fulfilling your calling? That your best days with Jesus are behind you? You can stand today, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry if I went longer than I anticipated, but I did warn you in the beginning. We are connected ladies and gentlemen, to the God of hope, healing, and restoration. And as we begin 2019, we're standing on the threshold of a new year. I would like all of you to come as our tradition is.
make that decision to come forward this morning and understand that you do have a place to begin again. Nobody here is looking at you. Nobody here is condemning you. Don't look around you. Don't look at your past. Don't look at the weight of your sin in your life. Turn your gaze upon Jesus. Look into his face. Let him show you the way forward in your life. Let him reveal to you that you do have a contribution to make. And that contribution that you're going to make is going to be one where you're standing on the failures of your life so that God gets the glory and can show those around you that it doesn't matter how deep the stain of sin, our God can forgive all. Within Him is the pathway forward. From His face, you see the invitation to begin again. So in 2019, our mantra for this new year should be coming from one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible. Micah 7 and 8 says, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. It is not by my power. It is not by my capability. I am going to rise. You're going to rise because you have a God that is going to lift you. Hallelujah. So when you make your, your resolutions in this new year, resolve to begin again. Determine in your heart from this moment on that you will let the restorative power of Christ remold your life into an instrument of His will. Let's worship the Lord this morning. Get in contact with God. I feel the undercurrent of the Holy Ghost moving this morning. You do not have to leave this place the same way you came. You do not have to leave this place this morning with the weight of sin on your back. Stop listening to that voice in your ear that says you're not worthy of the presence of God. You serve a God that is greater. Greater than the sin of your lives. Greater than the repetitive mistakes of your past. Serve God again. Start again. Begin again. Everybody reach heavenward this morning, everybody. All across the building. There's a lot of people here today that needed to hear what you've just heard. There's people here today that should act on it. I pray that you do. Somebody reach out to the Lord today. Reach out to the Lord. 
We've heard the word of the Lord this morning. Somebody take advantage of an open door, of a prepared path from where you are to where God is. Somebody let the Lord have his way. Somebody let the Lord have his way in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Go ahead, somebody. This is your moment. This is your moment. This is your moment. Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus. Come on, folks. The Lord is moving right now. The Spirit of the Lord's moving right now. Somebody let Him have His way. Somebody let Him have His way in Jesus' name. That's right. That's right. That's right. Hallelujah. Jesus. Come on, Grace Church, let's worship Him. Everybody worship Him. Would you lift your hands across the building today? Let's worship the Lord. Let's worship the Lord. Everybody, let's worship the Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. somebody let the Lord have his way let the Lord have his way let the Lord have his way in Jesus name in Jesus name
Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. God bless you guys. Shake hands with one another. Greet one another. Happy New Year, everybody. We'll see you next Sunday, Lord willing. God bless you today.